Let's just pray and see what we're going to do tonight. Father, thank you for what you've done in us already and what, you, what you've done just visiting us and just being present with us. And Lord, we just ask that you would just inspire us tonight, that you would inspire us, that you'd exhort us. <laughs> Lord, you take uh, anyone in this room that's struggling with hopelessness or, or fear or discouragement or depression, Lord, that you would just, your spirit just come on them. You take ashes and turn them into joy. Lord, we just pray for that right now, that you would take people who are, are in fear and that you would cause them to be as bold as a lion, in Jesus' name. Lord, that you would just create in people just a courage and boldness. And Father, that you would just give us a strategy to see the nations just really rocked by God. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Um, you know, when Samuel, um, in fact, why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we're just going to look at something we've uh, talked about before, but I want to just kind of take it a different direction tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 9 is a story about Samuel um, when he anoints Saul as king, and the story begins in the ninth chapter and the 15th verse, but Saul has lost his donkeys. And uh, Saul's father's a, a farmer. He's lost his donkeys, and he sent his son Saul out to find the donkeys. And they're, they're looking, they're looking, they can't find the donkeys. And finally, Saul's servant says to him, you know, why don't we go to this next city and see if maybe there's a prophet in that city. I've heard there's a prophet in that city, and maybe he knows where our donkeys are. Wouldn't, wouldn't it just be awesome if we could get back to that core value where we really believe two things. One, that God cared about donkeys that he cared about the small things of our life. How many know that the Lord, the very hairs of your head are numbered? That, the God, that God, you have a God who cares about the little details of your life. I remember when we, when we were young, am I fading in and out? I remember when we were young, when Kathy and I, before we got married, I'd say, you know, why don't we, she'd be going through a hard time or something, and I'd say, why don't we pray for you? And she'd say, no, I don't want to pray for me because I, I, I don't want to bother God until I really need something big. I'm like, this is before we were saved. I'm like, I think that he has enough for us when, we're, when we have little things and we have big things. No, 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 I don't want to bother God with something small, like I can handle this. I'll wait till there's something big and then, then I'll use, my, use, my, uh, use up my, you know, my lotto ticket for that or whatever. How many of you know that we often feel that way? We would never say that, but sometimes we feel like, well, you know what, if, if we take an offering for this building, then it's going to affect... The poor people, like God has limited resources. We can only do a, a little bit. And how many of you know that God wants to break that poverty spirit off of us? Anyway, so, but he says, so he says, why don't we go up to this next city? I think there's a prophet there, and maybe he can tell us where our donkeys are. And uh, wouldn't it be awesome if we just got back to the place where people looked to, the peop people looked to, to God to discover... Little things like, where are donkeys, where are lost children, who committed the crime, so on and so forth. I just feel like God's bringing us to this place where he's needing us in, into society. And, you know, like Samuel said, is there not a prophet in Israel? And uh, I want to see us just begin to move in this direction. So anyway, they begin in verse 15. So Saul is, is out looking for the prophet, looking for his donkeys, finds this prophet, verse 15, now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. 
And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regard for my people because their cries come up to me. Then when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man whom I spoke, this is the one who will rule my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me please where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer, go up before me to the high place and you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you know and I will tell you all that's in your mind. Say, I will tell you all that's in your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that's desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your household? And Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak to me like this? And so let me just uh, make sure that you understand what's happening. So Saul is looking for the prophet. He runs into the prophet, but the day before he runs into the prophet Samuel, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, Listen, there's a guy... He's looking for donkeys. But his donkeys have been found. But when he meets you, you're going to anoint him king. How many of you were searching for donkeys and found God? How many of you found God by mistake? How many of you know that God can use donkeys to motivate you to find him? That sometimes, that sometimes we think that we're, do, we're going someplace for one thing and when we get there, God has actually tricked us into finding him. It's funny how we find the will of God. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we, we think that we, we're going to prepare, we're going to go do this and that, and we're going we're to go, we're gonna go to seminary, we're going to go to university, and we're going to graduate, and we're going to get a degree, and we have it all planned out, and we get there, and we find out that we were actually looking for donkeys, and we found the prophet, and God changed the whole direction of our life. How many of you prepared for one thing and found yourself doing another? Isn't that interesting? And so Saul um, meets... Uh, Samuel doesn't know he's the prophet. And he says, hey, can you tell me where the seer's house, where's the prophet's house? And Saul sa Samuel says, I am the prophet. And now um, your donkeys have been found, but I want you to stay with me for tomorrow I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. For aren't you the one that all of Israel is waiting on? And Samuel and Saul has this you know, incredible kind of like self-esteem issue. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm from the smallest tribe. Um, I am from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. I don't know why you're talking to me like this. But here's what's interesting. The Bible, Samuel says, I'm going to tell you what's already in your heart. Listen, this is in your heart. How many of you know that it was in his heart to be king, but he didn't know it? That there are things that are in your heart, but they haven't got to your mind yet. That when your heart hears them, your heart rejoices. How many of you have ever read a passage of Scripture or heard a message or have someone say something and you begin to cry and your mind's all, What's going on? Someone talk to us! How many of you have ever had that? Does your mind talk like that? That's the exact voice my mind speaks in. Verse, let's go to chapter 10. So it's morning. <laughs> no comments, please. And Samuel took the flask of oil, chapter 10, verse 1, and he poured it over his head, and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his inheritance? And when you go for me today, you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, and they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. But behold, your father ceased to be concerned about the donkeys, and he's anxious about you, saying, What about my son? You'll go from there, and you will come to the oak of Tabar, and there will be three men going up to God at Bethel. Isn't that interesting? Going up to God at Bethel. Even there we were famous. <laughs> they, this is even before podcasting. It's just amazing. 
And they will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. <laughs> a jug of wine. I don't know why that seems funny right now, but let's just go on. <laughs> Verse 4, and they will greet you and give you... Would you please? <laughs> they will greet you, and they will give you two loaves of bread. They won't give you the wine. They'll give you two loaves of bread, and you will accept it from their hand. Somehow that just seems so funny right now. And afterward, you come to the hill of God where the Philistines' garrison is, and it shall be... Please stop. You'll come to the city. And this is the place we're getting to right here. And you'll meet a group of prophets coming down... This is the main point of this part of the message. You'll be... Okay. You're going to meet some prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, lyre... Why would they name an instrument after lying? I don't get it. Anyway, before them, and they will be prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Verse 9, And it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all these signs came about that day. This is a very interesting story, because Samuel says, when you Listen, what's going to happen is, listen, you've got a prophetic word. But you need a changed heart. See, I don't think that Samuel was I don't think that Saul was changed into a different man. I think he was changed back into the man he was supposed to be. How many know that when, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for our sin, he died because we all fell short of the glory. And how many of you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to restore the glory that you fell short of, that I fell short of, that the world fell short of? And so I don't think that Saul became a different man, but when he encountered the prophets coming down from the mountain, he became a new man. He became the man that he was designed to be in the first place. The man that underneath that low self-esteem and, and probably all the circumstances of life and maybe even his, his sins and failures, underneath there was a, a, was a real man, a real king, a royal man. And when he encountered the prophet, suddenly that, that the reality of his identity came to the surface and he realized that he was born to rock. Yeah. What's really interesting, and I didn't look up the scriptures because I didn't plan to preach this part tonight, but here's what's interesting. Saul, you know, later on Saul goes crazy. and he, uh, 1 Samuel 18, he gets jealous of David. And by the way, let me just stop right here for a second. Jealousy will kill you. Do not partner with jealousy. Do not compare yourself to what God's doing with anyone else. It's a great way to invite jealousy in your life. And James says, where there's jealousy and selfish ambi ambition, there's every evil thing. It says that Saul was jealous of David. The next verse says, and Saul was suspicious of David. And the next verse says, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized Saul. But what's really interesting, so Saul's this schizophrenic kind of person who hates David and who's chasing David through the wilderness. And three times while he's chasing David, the prophets come down from the mountain. And every time Saul, who's this crazy madman now, totally insane, just a, a murderous madman, he's murdered hundreds of priests and he's, he's just totally crazy. But guess what happens? Every time he encounters the prophets, the rest of his life, every time he encounters the prophets, he's changed back into the man 
he was supposed to be. Isn't that amazing? Until it becomes a byword in Israel, and they say this, is Saul among the prophets? You know what they're saying? They're saying whenever you have a big problem, like whenever they would have a big problem in Israel, like let's say their son was sick or they couldn't pay their electric bill, they would say, is Saul among the prophets? In other words, what they're saying is, if God could change Saul, a madman, into a righteous man when he encountered the prophets, certainly God can take care of any problem you have. And here's where, here's where I'm going tonight. I really believe that we're supposed to move from ministry to developing a culture, a kind of a vortex. In other words, I think we're supposed to go from, in this case, prophetic ministry. It wasn't that Saul got prophesied over that changed him. It was when he encountered the vortex that was around the prophets. It was, see, the, Samuel prophesied to him, but he didn't have a changed heart. But when he, he had a new word, he had a sense of purpose and destiny, he knew where he was going, but he couldn't do it until he encountered the, the vortex that was around the prophetic ministry. And when he, encountered, when he came into that vortex, something in the atmosphere, something, the cosmos was impregnated with a change agent and became a different man. I really feel like God wants to teach us how to change cultures. I really believe that God wants to teach us how to alter atmospheres. I don't think that the principality of the, of the air has to be a demon. I think that the prince over a municipality can be the prince of peace. I think the Lord... Did you notice that in um, the book of Revelation chapter 1... Jesus tells the Apostle John, he gives him, um, he says, write these, write these things down and send them, write these messages and send them to who? Seven what? No, he didn't send them to seven churches. He sent them to seven angels over seven churches. How many know that when you have an apostolic call on your life, that God actually releases angels to, to bring about the apostolic mission. That angel, in other words, what I'm getting at is this. The, the, Jesus gives John an apostolic message for seven different regions. Those seven churches were in seven regions, and I believe that they, the reason why they were written to seven angels is because John's metron, his place of influence, was seven cities. And I think that God, every time God assigns an apostolic call to an apostolic people, he signs an angel there to, to bring about the apostolic mission. And what I'm getting at is this. There doesn't, there doesn't, it isn't necessary that a principality rules a geographic area. I believe that in apostolic cities, in cities that have foundations, remember Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations and whose builder and maker was God. How many know that foundations, are, apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church and the Lord wants to create foundations that, that, that actually have apostolic vortexes so that angels actually oversee areas and when people come into those areas, they're changed into the people they were supposed to be. I think we're coming into a, a time and a season where the Lord is going to give us wisdom and insight on not just how to influence people, but how to, how to change cultures. How to transform cultures. I was thinking about a word, in fact, um, Bill and I were in an airport 
We're both coming in from different places, but we were in an airport yesterday, and um, we were talking about uh, well, we were talking about several things. But I was asking Bill to remind me about the story uh, when he he's told it several times here when he was in a prayer meeting. I think it was in Vacaville, California, and uh, I, I think I probably won't get this exactly right, but Bill was just feeling like that God wanted to have a city. That if God could get a city, if, we could, if God could get one city that would fall under the, the very presence of God, that it would cause a domino effect. And a prophet came up to him and said, Bill, I believe that God wants to find one city that he could capture. One city that would come under the influence of his presence. And if he could find one city, it would be like a domino effect. And all the cities of the nations would begin to fall under that. And Bill said, I believe, I believe that that city is Redding, California. <laughs> I think it was a few minutes later, forgive me if the story is not exactly accurate, but the content is, is at least. A few minutes later, this prophetess who we know came up to Bill and said, Bill, I feel like the Lord is looking for one city. One city that would fall under the presence of God. One city that, that, that would fall under the presence of God and, and once that city is converted into a kingdom city, that other cities would fall like dominoes. And Bill said, I was just about to say, I believe that city is Redding, California. And before he could finish, is this right? She said, I believe that city is Redding, California. I was thinking about that, um, you know, I was thinking about how things change. How do... How how does God actually move things? How, how do situations and cultures change? And I was thinking about that story. I think I have it written down here. In, 1960, uh, in 1954, Roger Bannister, do you remember this story? I shared it not too long ago, but Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And for hundreds of years, no one had ever broke the four-minute mile. For years and years and years. As a matter of fact, the Romans used to send lions out after their runners <laughs> to try to break the point. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. It gives a whole other meaning to losing. <laughs> right before Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, in, the medical journal, in a medical journal, there was a study done about the, the, the human physique and the, and the mental capacity of a man, of a human. This is about six months before Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And the medical journal, a, a doctor, a scientist actually, did a study on, on, uh, on humans and said that if a man ever broke the four-minute mile, he would become mentally ill. And that it would be, it's physically impossible because of the makeup of a man and his physique to break the four-minute mile. And six, I think it was six or seven months later, on May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. Now, that's an amazing story. But what's really amazing is that, uh, is that in, on June 21st, 1954, so a month, about two months later, John Lanity broke his record. No one had ever broke the four-minute mile before. And suddenly, someone breaks the four-minute mile. Are you with me? 
I mean, for hundreds of years, no one has ever broke the four-minute mile. And then suddenly, somebody breaks this barrier, this invisible barrier. That's, you know, is this, is this just a physical thing or what? But he breaks this barrier. No one's ever broke it before. Scientists say it's impossible. Romans sent lions after people to try to break the four-minute mile. No one in history has ever broke the four-minute mile. And suddenly, Roger Bannister crosses the, the, the finish line and breaks the four-minute mile. And a month and a half later, another man breaks his record. The next year, 17 runners beat the four-minute mile. What I'm getting at is this, is that when somebody finally breaches the veil of the impossible, are you with me? Something happens when you breach the veil of the impossible. I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I mean, I don't, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm giving you a commentary on it, but not a documentary. I have no idea like, how it happened. I just know that when, that when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, that it was more than a personal victory. Like his personal victory became a corporate covering, a corporate breakthrough, so that people after him began to believe that they could break the four-minute mile. People just began to believe it. And when they began to believe it, they began to receive it. It's crazy. And I was thinking about this in the airport. I'm, I'm writing this book. Um, Bill wrote a book, uh, When Heaven Invades Earth, so I'm writing How Heaven Invades Earth. I don't really know how, but I figured if I started writing, then something will happen and may it come to me. But I was thinking about this. I was thinking about Bill's comment that that, 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 that prophetic declaration that God put in his heart and then confirmed with two other people. It's like, if God finds a city, it's like, how does, how does God change the world? He just needs a city. He just needs, he just needs a little boy's lunch, brunch, brunch, lunch. It doesn't really matter. Dinner, he didn't care. He just needs a little boy's lunch. He just needs to multiply something that already is. He's just looking for someone to have a personal breakthrough. He's looking for somebody to have a personal breakthrough. And when that personal breakthrough happens, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a small city like Nazareth or Reading or if it's a large city like L.A. He just needs one person to break the four-minute mile. And when God finds a city, people begin to believe God can take cities. Once people believe, God can take cities. Are you with me? Once people begin to believe it, it I don't, it's, there's some kind of, there's something true in there. I, I guess the more I talk, I'm like, I'm hoping something, I'll be able to explain it. I don't know why it happens. But I know that it does. And I believe that God wants us to become a people who begin to believe for a city. I was talking to someone recently and, and um, we were talking about ask, actually about eschatology. And they were saying, you know, I don't believe that mountain stuff, that seven mountain stuff. And, you know, he said, you know, Christians for 2,000 years haven't been able to disciple nations, so why would we see it now? He says, I think that's in the millennium. And I said, well, do you believe John 14 where Jesus said, greater works will you do when I go to be with the Father? He said, yeah, I believe that. I said, do you think that we've seen greater works than Jesus did? He said, no. I said, so then it is possible you're wrong. 
I mean, it's just possible. It's possible that when Jesus said, greater works will you do when I go to be with the Father, that he actually meant it. And then I said, do you think that when Jesus tells us to pray something that he wants us to believe it or just pray it? He said, no, no, he'd want us to believe it. I said, you know, the only prayer he ever taught us to pray is the, is the Matthew 6 prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I said, do you, do you believe Jesus gave us that prayer? He said, yeah. I said, do you think he wanted us to believe it or just pray it? It's just a thought. There, there's, there's something comforting about feeling like it's scriptural to be defeated when everyone around you is losing. It, it, it is true that misery loves company. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, it reminds me of the story of, of uh, young David when he comes to the battle lines to bring his brother's lunch. Do you remember this? And it says, for 39 days... Goliath taunted the armies of God. And it says, every time Goliath stood up, it says that the armies of Israel, which would include David's brothers, his seven brothers, trembled in fear. And then one day, David comes down to bring lunch just at this Kairos moment when the giant gets up and taunts for the 40th day the armies of God. And David begins to say, um, hey, uh, how come we're letting that guy do that? I, you know, uh, and, they, and he hears two guys talking. He's like, anyone who beats this guy is going to get the king's daughter. And he goes, whew, she's a woman. <laughs> so three times he asks, which daughter are we talking about? We're talking about Michael? Whew, she's a babe. And his brother hears, his oldest brother Elam, hears him conversing with this one of these guys about the reward. How many of you know it's spiritual to... You were born to live for a reward. Oh, I don't want anything. I just... I'll take yours. <laughs> he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. fact, Revelation says that when he comes back, his reward is with him. I'm getting mine. And if you don't take yours, I'll take yours too. Some people are so spiritual, they just make me sick. I don't know why you say you don't want a reward than ask for a raise at work. You know, that just don't make sense at all. Anyway, what was I saying? David, yeah. So David comes to the battle line and he, and he asks what the reward is and his oldest brother Elam comes up and he's like, David, go play with your sheep. How many of you know that if you're tortured and tormented and you have a problem that's too big for you, you don't want your kid brother beating him up? There, there's something about, you know what, you don't, want, you don't want this giant in your life, but you definitely don't want your little brother beating him. No, and, and in my opinion, it's to me, the, the giant... Of society is, is taunting the armies of the living God. And we're making excuses why we're not supposed to beat him. Like, why Goliath is somehow part of God's plan.
like, you know, like it's in there in the book of Revelation, somewhere, like he's supposed to be there. And David saw, no, he's not supposed to be there. I think we're supposed to kill him. He's taught that the armies of the living, there are people that have a bigger devil than they do God. They're just convinced that God cannot do what He said He'd do. I wrote this down. That's why I brought this up here, so in case I got nervous, I could read it. Uh, it's, just, um, it's a part of a chapter called Impregnating the Cosmos, but I just want to read you this one, this one um, paragraph. I'm personally on an eschatological journey. I feel like Abraham, when he first met God, the Lord told him to leave his country to a land he would show him. Abram, Abram didn't know where he was going. He just knew where he couldn't stay. I know I can't stay in an end-time the, uh, theology that steals my children's future and steals fear as a primary motivation for serving the Father and undermines the great commission to make disciples of all nations. Even though I'm not sure where I'm going, I've decided to allow a few simple core values to determine my eschatological journey. First, I will not let mystical passages that have been debated for centuries undermine the clear commands, promises, and prophecies that have come from the Lord Himself. Secondly, I will not embrace an end-time view that diminishes hope, promotes fear, and empowers the same devil that Jesus disarmed on the cross. The book of Revelation was to be the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist. Even though the book of Revelation is written in a prophetic style common to the mystics, it's therefore prone to subjectivity. I won't allow its interpretation to promote powerless Christianity. The mandate has been passed down from generation to generation with growing momentum, which is to destroy the works of the devil. It remains true in every epic season in life that when we submit to God and resist the devil, he flees from us. Therefore, the Antichrist is not happening to us. We're happening to him. Finally, I won't believe any time any end-time interpretation of Scripture that redefines the nature of God. He's good all the time. His love is indescribable, incomprehensible, unimaginable, and, and impossible to exaggerate. His mercy runs deeper than the ocean. His compassion is wider than the sea. His thoughts towards us are innumerable. He created us for His pleasure, and therefore He enjoys being with us. May we together find the promised land of our souls, and may even old people discover hope and begin to dream again. And Jesus said, Behold, I've sent you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. How many know Jesus cried out, He who eats my flesh, he who wants to follow me, has to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all left. So you know what he did? He sent you out as sheep among wolves. How many know people are hungry for the body of Christ? They just don't know it. They want to eat you. They don't want a little cup of juice. They want the whole meal. But how many of you know, we're not just talking about a consumption, we're talking about assimilation. Because people need to assimilate what they consume. And we don't want people to get just enough of Jesus to be inoculated from the real thing. Are you following me? And he said, I want you to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And I was, I was flying home from Spain. I've told the story a few times, but I was flying home from Spain 
a while back. And, the, and just, you know where you're in that, you're, you're between awake and asleep, that, that zone where you're just kind of like zone. I'm in that place, and I'm, and I'm just about to fall asleep, or I'm just about to wake up, I don't remember which, and I hear this verse, I want you to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. I haven't read that passage for a long time, so I, I, knew, I knew the Lord was talking to me. And then the Lord said, you've done the dove thing well, but you don't know a thing about serpents. He said, I want you to study the ways of serpents so you can emulate their ways and undermine their purposes. And I began to realize that, and listen to this, this verse, uh, Luke, 8, Luke 16, 8. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. I believe the Lord is going to begin to give us a strategy to infiltrate society, and it may not be the strategy that you thought of. I have a feeling that we're going to be sheep in wolves' clothing. I don't know if you got that. I have a feeling that many of us, like I believe in covert ministry, like I believe in peaceful revolution, I believe in uh, Martin Luther King, I believe in Lou Ingalls, I think that's, I want, you to, I want to be really clear. Like, I believe in overt ministry. But I think that it takes more than just overt ministry. I think it takes overt and covert. And I think the Lord wants to begin to seed us into the, into the seashore of humanity. And in places where no one's ever gone before. <laughs> it's interesting that when Daniel... Um, when he was uh, working for the king, in Daniel 1, uh, verse 7, it says, The commander of the officials assigned new names to Daniel and his uh, four friends, and he named them the names of the king's gods. In fact, in Daniel 4, 8, uh, it says this, But finally Daniel came in before the king, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom a spirit of the holy gods. And, he related, and I related the dream to him, saying, how many of you know that when Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't call him a prophet. They called him a magician, a sorcerer, a psychic, if you will. And Daniel took on the name, when Daniel was in the king's court, the king did not call him Daniel, at least not very often. He called him Belshazzar, which was the name of the king's god. And the king thought that Daniel was a polytheist, like himself, because he kept saying, who has the spirit of the holy gods, plural. It wasn't until he has an encounter in the fourth chapter, at the end of the fourth chapter, that he realizes that the god of Daniel is one god. But for four, for four chapters... He thinks that Daniel is a polytheist and that he's serving multiple gods. Now, here's a really interesting part of the story. Daniel won't eat the king's food. And he won't violate his commitment to pray three times a day, even if it's going to take his life. But he's okay with the king calling him by his god. That's the Selah. I, I, you think I'm going to tell you the answer to that. I, I don't know. I just, I just have a sense that what's going to happen in the next few years 
the, the world's going to redefine who they think we are so they can accept us. We won't change. A catalyst is an agent that brings change without itself being changed. I don't mean we're going to change. We're still going to pray three times a day. We're still not going to eat the king's food. Are, are you with me? But, but I, I think that we're overly sensitive to what they might call us. We, we, we might be on the team that guides the FBI and CIA, and that team might be called the psychic team. And you might be on the team. Because they don't have a category to pay profits. You go, I'm a prophet. And they're like, oh, you're a psychic when you come here. Right, whatever. Just find children and keep us safe. Call me whatever you want, you know. I have a sense that, that God is going to begin to need us into society. We, um, I was... I was praying, this is probably three or four months ago, and I felt like, you know how the mascot of the prophetic movement in the church for I don't know how many years has been the eagle? Like whenever you see, you know, whenever we put out uh, a brochure, oftentimes for a prophetic culture, I'm sorry, prophetic conference, we'll, we'll have the eagle on the front, or, you know, it, it's just, and eagles are all through the Bible are, are um, symbols oftentimes of, the way that we see what can't be seen, the way we can see from a distance, and so on and so forth. And there's that whole thing. But I was, I, was, um, I was actually just laying awake one night, and I felt like the Lord said, the mascot for this season is not the eagle, but it's the owl. The Lord said, the owl is nocturnal. Sees in the night and knows who's who. So I was... Um, I, it, during Brian and, and uh, Jen and Kathy's worship school, I was doing one session, and they asked me to come in, and so I had this whole thing planned, and the Lord says, as I'm coming to the pulpit, the Lord says, I want you to prophesy over the school. I said, okay, what am I going to prophesy? He said, the owl thing. I said, all right, the owl thing. So I come up, and I start prophesying that the Lord is changing the mascot from the eagle to the owl, because we're going to see into the night. We're going to look into the the the, the lives of people like Rahab who on the outside look totally evil and we're going to go you know what there's the great 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 grandmother of Jesus Christ right there she looks like a prostitute but it's a great grandmother of Jesus Christ through the lineage of David himself and so anyway so I'm up there and I'm sharing this um, this kind of exhortation prophecy and I get done sharing that and Jen comes up and she says, um, this, this guy, who he's not part of the school, but he, he's been kind of uh, auditing the class, he found an owl today in the road and he brought it to class. <laughs> now that's weird, right? So the next day, so the next day I fly to Los Angeles, my son Jason and I fly to Los Angeles to meet Ahmad Gibbons because Ahmad's read my purity book you know the white-covered purity book? And Ahmad has the number one show on VH1, which is called Real Chance at Love 2, which is, VH1 is a very sleazy, you, I don't recommend you watch it. He keeps sending me copies of the, of the different uh, series, and I'm like, I can't watch this. But he reads my book and gets totally rocked. He reads my book gets totally rocked, and he tells our 
attorney, who's um, also his attorney, just a real godly guy, he says, I, I want to get this book on my show. On this totally sleazy show. I want to get your purity book on there, but I need it to have a different cover because I don't want the white Christian thing on there. So we put a black cover on it called Sexual Revolution, The Naked Truth About Moral Purity. And Ahmad wrote the... Um, Ahmad, who's, you know, uh, admittedly, I mean, publicly struggling with his own purity, wrote an you know, um, endorsement on the back of the cover. So my son and I go down to meet Ahmad to just talk through this deal of, this, of the book being on the, on the show, and you know, we're, we're like, wow, we've never done this before. I wonder what's going to happen when the Christian world finds out that we have a purity book, Christian purity book on VH1. The Christians don't tend to like when you, when you, when you actually love people who they're supposed to be reaching. So, um, so we're sitting with uh, Ahmad and his manager, Steve, and Brock, our attorney, and Jason and I, and we're there to, to, make, to complete this business deal. We're there about 10 minutes. Ahmad is a, um, an African-American young man, long hair. He's got a, a band called the Stallionaires. He's uh, it's not a Christian band. <laughs> He's just really a cool guy. But Ahmad has this thing. He really loves God. Raised by a preacher. So we're, we're in the room and we're talking about, you know, the practical part of the book and how he's going to get it in and all the stuff about the book. And maybe 10 minutes goes by. And I am, this thing happens to me. I, I don't know if, who else. I, you know, we're all unique, so God speaks to us individually, right? Well, one of the ways God speaks to me is I see things over people. And sometimes I'm trying to have a conversation with them and the thing is so, gets so clear that I can't really concentrate on what we're talking about. So we're doing this business deal and I see this thing over a mod. I see, I see, the, word, I see the word prophet over a mod. And I see an owl sitting on his shoulder. So we're trying to have a conversation, but I can't get past this. This happens to me a lot. Sometimes it's not okay to say what I see. So, so we're having this conversation. I don't, I've never met Ahmad before. Talked to him for maybe a minute on the phone just to work out the details of Jason and I flying down. And so finally I go like this. I go, time out. And everybody's like, what? I said, time out. I can't do this anymore. I said, what? I said, Ahmad, I just have this thing happening. I see the word prophet written over you, and there's an owl sitting on your right shoulder. I said, you've been called as a prophet from the time you were a little boy. And I start telling him about this thing about being a prophet. He looks at me like he's seen a ghost. And so I give him about, you know, I don't know how long it was, probably three or four minute word about being a prophet. And I give him, I said, you almost died at birth, but the Lord saved you. And, and it was something that happened in your womb, in the womb of your mother and all the stuff. And, and he's, so, you know, now he's choking back tears. And Steve, his manager, is like. <laughs> and Brock is like, I hope this is okay, you know. <laughs> and my son's got his hand on my leg. Which is kind of like, I don't know if it's like, Dad, be quiet, or I wish Mom was here. <laughs> or if it's, he's praying for me. I, I don't know which it is. 
So when I stopped talking, Ahmad goes, you're never going to believe this. You're never going to believe this. I said, what? He goes, he goes, you know when you talk about that wonders and signs thing? I said, yeah. He goes, well, about, I forget, about two months ago, I think it was. He said, about two months ago, I'm walking down the street in this city. We're doing a concert there. And a white owl comes down and almost hits me in the head. And he goes, I go, that was weird. He said, three days later, we're in another city. And I'm walking down the street. And a white owl comes down and it almost lands on my shoulder and passes me right by. And, and, and another city, a white owl, another white owl. And he goes, that was really weird. He goes, a week later, I think this is all within six weeks, so maybe it was spaced out a little bit further than that. He said, we are in another city. And he said, a white owl came right down. He goes, you were there, weren't you, Steve? Steve's all. And he said, it swooped down right in between Steve and I and flew off. A white owl. Get this. This will, this will freak you out. Two weeks ago, I'm telling that story. And I have my, my iPhone. Usually, I always keep it with me in case God wants to talk to me. I put it on vibrate so it feels like a manifestation. God's my witness. This is the story. I'm telling them the story about Ahmad and all this. And my phone vibrates. You know, and I, I'm like, oh, whatever. And, and, and you know how if you, don't, if you don't get it, it vibrates again? So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take it, like, you know, I'm, so I'm kind of, yeah, and so, you know, and I turn like this, and I'm going to just turn it off. But when I look down, it's Ahmad. And he goes, you're never going to believe this. Another owl flew over my, white owl flew over my head. While I'm telling the story, he's texting me that. I, I don't know what that means at all. It's just a cool story. But I think it means that God is going to release the white owls, the purity. People who can be like Daniel, they can be redefined externally, but they're not redefined internally. They remain who they are. Are you with me? I mean, the first question is, can you stand the test of favor? Solomon was taught this when he was a little boy. Unfortunately, he didn't listen to his own counsel of his father. When he wrote Proverbs, his dad said to him, when you sit at the table of a king, he didn't say if you, he said when you. When you sit at the, at the table of a king, put a knife to your throat. Do not desire his delicacies, lest he deceive you. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. I, I don't know where I'm going with this story, but to see where it ends up. There are people that are called to be warriors, like David. David was a warrior. And when he wanted to build, it was, God loved the fact that he built a tabernacle for him. But when he wanted to build a permanent house, God goes, you can't do it. Because, you, because you've taken human blood and my value for humanity is so great that I can't let you make something permanent for me because I don't want I don't want war to be permanent so you can't build it but your son Solomon a man of peace he can build it 
And there was no war in Solomon's day. For 40 years, no war. Amazing. The only problem is, is that Solomon forgot that it was God who gave him peace. And so the man of peace made covenants with foreign kings and married their wives and took on their gods. Can, can I just give you a word that needs to be judged? I've never shared this, I don't think. I think I've shared it with a couple people. I had a sense... Uh, I, this is podcasting. I better not do it. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that to you. I'm just thinking that what, what wisdom is. I, I, I better not do that. But let me just say this. I think there's a Solomon anointing on our country right now. And my concern is that we don't sell. That we don't sell ourselves off to foreign kings. That we don't marry that we don't marry the daughters of foreign kings and take on their gods. That we realize that this peace that we're about to enter into is from God. If we'll know where it's from, we'll give credit to him and we'll not feel the pressure to marry foreign gods. Marry foreign, foreign daughters and take on foreign gods. You just got to think through that. I can't say any more than that. But I think it's important that we, that we realize that we are called to disciple nations. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm going I'm to take about ten more minutes and I'll be done. Jesus made a statement that I think is, the, is profound, and I think that we don't know it's profound because of the day we live in. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven, which would not have been even a revelation to the people he was speaking to. But when he said on earth, that would have been stunning. The people that he was talking to, when Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, they would have been stunned because they lived for thousands of years under the power of the devil because Adam... How many know that if Adam would have just disobeyed God, that he wouldn't have been under the power of the devil? Adam didn't come under the power of the devil because he disobeyed God. He came under the power of the devil because he obeyed the devil. He changed masters. If he would have been walking through the garden one day after God told him, don't touch that tree, and he would have said, hey, Eve, I've got this idea, let's eat this tree. He would have sinned. It wasn't just that he sinned, it's that he changed masters. God said, don't do it. The devil said, do it. And he listened to the devil, and the whole world came under the power of the devil. It wasn't just that he sinned, it's that he changed masters. Are you following me? So how many know that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God? It was necessary for Jesus to beat the devil as a man because Adam, who had authority, take dominion over all the earth. He gave his authority to the devil when he obeyed the devil instead of God. So when Jesus obeyed God instead of the devil with the same temptation, he won back all authority. So here's the point. So Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven which, ah, that's a yawn. We all know that. And then he said, and on earth. And then he said this, therefore, because I have authority on earth, I want you to make disciples of all nations. 
And then I want you to teach them all that I taught you. Do you realize that we were first commanded to make disciples before we were commanded to teach them? In other words, we go, oh, you know what? The world's not hungry for God. That's our... Listen, uh, making a disciple is a learner. So first we have to make them want to learn, then teach them. So we're responsible for both their hunger and their training. Did you get that? In other words, we have to be something they're hungry for. <laughs> but here's, the, here's, the port, here's where I was going. He said, because I have authority in heaven and on earth, I want you to make disciples of all nations. In other words, nations used to be, their authority used to originate from the devil because the devil was the god of this world. And, and all kings, you know, mayors, governors, prime ministers, whatever you want to call it, everyone who had authority had authority that was ultimately given to them from a demonic influence. Are you following me? But when Jesus won back, when he beat the devil at his own game, he, beca- he got the keys to the kingdom, and that included authority over the earth. So now Jesus has all authority over all the earth. And he says, now I want you, because I'm in charge of the earth, and everyone who is in authority is there by me, I want you to disciple them. I want you to make disciples of nations. Let me just read this because you don't believe me. You have that look like when I tell my wife I got something on sale. (laughs) Chapter 13 of Romans, let me just read it to you. Every person is to be subject in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they have opposed, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now remember that Paul writes this in the days of Nero. Do you, uh, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. Listen to this. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all, uh, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom whom du- custom is due. Fear to whom du- fear is due. Honor to whom honors due. How many of you know that all authority is from God? And you pay taxes because you pay tithes to your spiritual authority and taxes to your natural authority. And they're both from God. And I think the next move of God is we're going to figure out how Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers relate to Romans 13. How do these people relate to these people? Because God said, you are my apostles and I want you to disciple these guys. I want you to make disciples of nations. Not just in nations, but of nations. And here's the last point I want to make. It's important for us, if we're going to change, transform cultures, to understand what drives a culture. And I want to give you an analogy and finish with this. A, a culture is like a refrigerator. If you take a boiling pot of water and you put it inside a refrigerator, does the refrigerator get warm or does the water get cold? 
Ah, the water gets cold. Why? Because the refrigerator is plugged in. It has an ecosystem that perpetuates its cold culture. So sometimes we think, we're going to take really hot people and we're going to put them in the refrigerator. We're going to take them and we're going to, we're going to need these hot people into society. But what happens? I tell you what happens because we've put hundreds of them together when they come home. Are you following me? What happens if you take a refrigerator and you take a, uh, a, a burner and you put water in it on top of it, a bowl of water on a burner, and you take the burner and you put it in the refrigerator? And you keep the burner plugged in and the refrigerator plugged in. Now you have two cultures in conflict. Who's going to win? Well, it depends on how many BTUs the burner puts out and how many BTUs the air conditioner puts out, with, which Paul Manwaring remind me that they're British thermal units. <laughs> Whatever that has to do with the, anything. But here's the point. Romans 10 says, how will they hear if there's no preacher? How will they preach if they're not sent? The word there is apostle. How many of you know that you're not supposed to just went, but you're supposed to be sent? So you're supposed to stay plugged in. Because if you don't stay plugged in, you're going to freeze to death. But here's the ultimate analogy for a culture. We have to figure out what is... What, what is driving the ecosystem of the refrigerator and unplug it? Unplug the refrigerator and put the Bunsen burner in there. Are you with me? I don't think we just need to be two kingdoms in conflict. I think we're supposed to destroy the works of the devil. Unplug, unplug the ecosystem that is driving the evil system and then put something hot in there. I don't think... Do you see what I'm getting at? In my mind, evangelism right now, in the, in the last hundreds of years, it's looked like we put somebody hot into a, a cold refrigerator and they become... You know, and, you know, sometimes we think the refrigerator is like an icebox. You know, an icebox doesn't have an ecosystem that perpetuates it. So we put the hot water in a, in a, in a cold icebox and what happens? Well, it depends on what day you're talking about, right? Because if you put a hot... something very hot in a and something very cold, it might raise the temperature, but if you leave it there long enough, it all becomes lukewarm. I don't know if you thought that about that. The Lord doesn't like lukewarm. He doesn't like when two cultures have no energy to perpetuate them. But I want to propose to you that most cultures have an ecosystem that perpetuate them. They are not ice boxes. They are refrigerators. And it's our job to figure out what's driving the refrigerator and unplug it. Not rail against it. You know, when the church loses power, signs and wonders become something you put on a stick and take to parades. I don't know if you thought through that. If you don't walk in signs and wonders and miracles, then signs become something you put on a stick and take to parades. And people are just totally wild by that. It's changing all over the world. They're just falling on their knees when they, they find out that you put a scripture on the stick. Just, they're just moved by your, 
compassion. This totally changes people. I want to propose to you we'd put a lot less signs on sticks if we actually had them as wonders. That led to another kingdom. Every time Jesus heals the sick, every time Jesus casts out a demon, every time he does a miracle, it's a sign. What's it a sign of? That a superior ecosystem has just superimposed itself over an inferior ecosystem. Because when God heals someone, all he's doing is being himself. And the kingdoms come near. When somebody gets healed, you know what really happened? The kingdom came near. The kingdom that doesn't have sickness, doesn't have disease, doesn't have evil spirits in it, doesn't have depression in it, the kingdom came near. So what is, why is healing a sign? It's a sign that a superior ecosystem has just infiltrated an inferior ecosystem. But if you don't have those, then you need something on a stick. And I want to propose to you that when we start, real, when we start to actually think, in fact, you know where it says, be shrewd as serpents? The word shrewd there is the root word, think. It's a whole revelation. Christians that think. <laughs> oh my goodness, what could happen if we actually did that? Don't tell anybody, we'll keep it to ourselves. See, we, we like to do crazy, zealous stuff, but thinking has not been our strong suit. It says that Saul killed the Gibeonites out of his zeal for the people of God. And a generation later, David has a famine on his hands. And he goes to God, he goes, God, why is there a famine? Saul didn't experience a famine, David did. Who sinned? Saul. How did he sin? He had zeal that was misplaced for the people of God. God says, Saul killed the Gibeonites and he brought a curse on the land. How many know zeal without wisdom? Bring, bring a curse. You're trying to do the right thing. You're railing for God. And you're doing the absolute opposite of what brings cultural transformation. Why don't you stand and let's just pray. <laughs> we'll release the owls. <laughs> I love this. I was reading this today. In fact, I sent it to Bill. Graham, Graham Cook, he's, just, he's got one-liners like Bill. Two of them he sent, that, two of them that, he, uh, that I wrote down when I was in a conference with him. He said, we're being romanced by Jesus. Jesus is making a move on us. What if the next move is ours? I love that. And here's the, here's the other one. It's time to start praying as the bride instead of a widow. We are not a widow. Our husband is alive. So I want you to grab the hand of the person next to you. And I want you to pray, I want you to pray for two things. First of all, I want you to pray that they would be innocent as doves. I want you to pray for their purity. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just saying sexual purity. I'm talking about the purity. I'm talking about wholeness. You know, holiness comes from wholeness. That they would be whole. I want you to pray for that for the person. You're not, you're obviously, making, we're not making accusations that you're not. We're just making sure you stay that way if you are. 
And if you're not, then we're, at, then we're actually convicting you of your sins. I don't know if that's true. But anyway, let's, let's move on, okay? So I want you to pray for the person right now, on your left and right. I want you to pray. And, you know, Holy Spirit's going to give you some, some good insight into that. And don't, 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 don't pray, oh, Holy Spirit, please convict this person of pornography or whatever. Don't do that, all right? Just pray. Just pray that they'd be innocent as doves. Just pray for real holiness and wholeness over them. Just pray that right now. Just pray over them. You can add more words than that. Out loud's good. I just saw this big old owl. I'm serious. Just come in and just land in the middle of the congregation. Uh, Looked like a helicopter. Okay, now I want you to pray that they be wise as serpents. I want you to pray. Wise as serpents. Come on, come on, pray. You can pray more than that too. Just give them strategies. Wise as serpents. <laughs> We're having a little fun. Come on. Don't pray as a widow. Pray like the bride. Touch the top of the scepter. The king's extending his scepter to you. What would happen if you actually believed that what you're praying is going to happen? Lord, just release, release the Holy Spirit to hover over us, to brood over us. Lord, we pray for that right now. Let us be impregnated with a revival that lasts multiple generations. Lord, we pray for that right now. Lord, we pray for every person in this room. We pray for holiness, not, not, not a list of rules, but true holiness, the very, the very nature of God to be released over each person in here. Lord, we just release that right now over every person. The true Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would just begin to infiltrate every part of our being. That we become cellular, that He would become cellular in us. That we would be holy people because we have a Holy Spirit in us. Lord, we pray for that. Lord, we pray that like the instructions that you gave Solomon, that we'd put a knife to our throat, that we wouldn't desire the delicacies of the world, that you could trust us in the deepest, darkest cesspools of society and that we can bring the kingdom there without being, without being stained, without be, getting dirty, without getting our hands dirty, without desiring the things that they desire. Lord, we pray for that. You said don't desire the, 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 to be with a violent man. Lord, we just pray right now that you would just release peace and love and joy over us, that we wouldn't be stained by the world, but that we would actually get into the world system, that you'd be able to trust us like Daniel, trust us like Joseph, we wouldn't get in Potiphar's bed. We would be, we'd be people who forgive our brothers. we keep our vision alive in the midst of our prisons. Lord, just release that purity, that holiness. Trust, be able to trust us in the king's courts, in the highest places of authority. Lord, that we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be taken by the love of money or the love of power or, the, or any of those things. They wouldn't have any, we wouldn't have an appetite for those things, Lord. And that when we did, that we'd be able to manage our appetites. We'd learn how to manage our appetites in the midst of an evil society. Lord, that you would give us wisdom like the serpent. That you would teach us what's perpetuating evil ecosystems, evil cultures. That we'd be able to come in and pull the plug. We'd be able to come in and pull the plug on evil. 
Lord, you said destroy the works of the devil. Lord, let us pull the plug on evil. In Redding, California, I want us to, I want us to all pray for Redding. Your city, we'll pray for your city later. Do you just help us pray for our city right now? And listen, if we get a breakthrough, it'll be your breakthrough. We'll be your Roger Bannister. Lord, we just pray for Redding, California, that we'd unplug evil, that we'd pull the cord of evil, and that we would release the fire of God. Revivalists into this city, into every, into every mountain of this city, that the mountain of the house of the Lord become chief of the mountains, and people would stream to it. And they'd say, teach us the ways of the Lord. We'll walk in His path. We want to know His truth. Lord, we just pray for that over in Redding, California, that our city would become a vortex for angels ascend and descend, that Bethel Church would become a landing pad for the angels to ascend and descend. Lord, it would be like Jacob's ladder when Jacob laid his head on a rock and he said, God was here and I didn't even know it. Lord, we pray for that, that Jesus would come in different forms. Come on. Like the road of Emmaus, that Jesus would come in different forms and would sit with people, even in government and in education, Lord, let Jesus come in different forms in education. Come on, are you getting this? Let Jesus come in different forms in, the government, in our government. Let Jesus come in different forms in the medical community, in the arts community. Let Jesus come in different forms. Lord, we just pray for that right now. Just release Jesus. We just release Holy Spirit. Have your, have your will. We pray for every city official to come under the power, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the righteous to rule in our city. We pray for righteous to rule in our city. We pray for drug addiction. And we, it, that, those would be, that drug addiction would be broken over our city. That no drugs would be sold in our city. That people would come into our city with terminal diseases and they would leave healed. It would become a city of divine health. Lord, we pray that our hospitals would be empty because of the power of God. We pray that our school system would teach creation. They would know about the Creator. And Lord, that people as they study in our city... We pray for a science lab to be set up in our city. So for Romans 1, a science lab. I see a science lab. What is that? I just see a science lab. I see a science lab. Romans 1 says, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. Lord, let this be a science lab where, where atheists go into the science lab and they learn about God through creation. Lord, we pray for cures for diseases to come out of this place. We pray for the cure, cure for AIDS and cancer to come out of this place. That we would export, that we would export answers for, for, for diseases and sicknesses that our city, that our business the, the finances of our city would be under the influence of the richest king in the, who's never been born. Lord, we just release supernatural finances, supernatural business ideas. Let, we release creativity. Lord, we pray for people like Walt Disney and Robert Schuller and people that dream outside of the box. Imagineers visioneers, dreamers. Let old men begin to dream again. Old women begin to dream again. Let this be, let this be a, a think tank. Let Reading be a think tank where people dream of new ideas. Like what Silicon Valley is 
to the to the um, to um, the technological age. Lord, let Reading be that. Yeah, what Nashville is to music and Hollywood is to movies, let Reading be that to think. Let people come here to think. Let the most creative ideas that ever have come about in the world come out of this place, come out of this city. Think tanks. I see think tanks. They're like prayer. I don't know what they are, really. <laughs> I see things as metaphors sometimes, weird things. You don't even want to know what I see. Tanks. Think tanks. I know, weird. Yeah, tanks. <laughs> Get it? Think tanks? Think tanks are weapons of warfare. Tanks, when people think, it destroys the works of the devil. Thank you, Lord. We just release that over every person. I pray people would just start visioneering. Imagineers. Visioneers. Disney called his people Imagineers. I was walking through the Crystal Cathedral a month ago. The, the month I saw Maud, they took me on a tour through the Crystal Cathedral. I was walking through the Crystal Cathedral. It's not a building I would build. I like rustic. <laughs> a rustic castle, that's what I'd build. And I was looking around, I'm like, whoa, it took guts to build something like this. Think about what the Christian world thought when this man was building this. And the world was applauding him, and the Christians were like, why waste this money on God? Wouldn't it be awesome if we actually had beautiful buildings and beautiful people? If they actually could go together. That's just a good idea. The Catholics had it right. They just need people now to fill those beautiful cathedrals. Man, you ever walk in a Catholic cathedral? There's gods in there. You just need the people to fill them up. Some of them are full of godly people. It's amazing. Are you still holding hands? You can let go now. Sorry. Amen.